1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Natale Zapia, author of Traders and Raiders, The Indigenous World of the Colorado Basin, 1540 to 1859, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Dr. Zapia is an assistant professor of history at Whittier College, where he teaches early American, Native American, borderlands, and environmental history. Professor Zappia's research explores the ways that continental trading networks, food pathways, and ecologies transform North America over the past three centuries. Dr. Zappia's research has been supported by uh, a number of institutions, including the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Autry National Center, and the Mellon Fellowship at the Huntington Library. Hello, Nat, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Hi, DJ. Thanks for uh, having me.
1: Of course, we're It's a pleasure. Okay. I was wondering if you could start our conversation today by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, so, just, as you mentioned, I teach at, at Whittier College, which is in, in Los Angeles, right outside Los Angeles. Uh, but I'm I'm from uh, from the East Coast, from uh, from New York, where I went to school uh, as an undergraduate at, a, at Cornell University. And at Cornell, I, I had a chance to um, to take uh, several courses and. and have as a mentor, uh, Professor uh, Robert Venables, who uh, taught in the American Indian uh, Studies program there,
2: mm-hmm. and he was a
0: historian, public public historian, who uh, worked with the Haudenosaunee, the uh, Iroquois, from from upstate New York. And uh, as a historian, as a historian for the tribe, uh, he, he was consulted on um, numerous land uh, land claims cases, uh, particularly amongst the uh, Onondaga Nation, which. Their reservation is right in between Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is, and Syracuse. And uh, he worked with uh, many of the folks to, uh, on different court cases, to try to, to help the the tribe uh, use use history essentially, use historical record, records and documentation to get back uh, to some land, or you know, at least get back uh, a recognition from the local and state and federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for land restitution and taking this course has really, uh, really got me obviously interested, but also really excited, uh, and, uh, um, just fascinated with the, the topic of of course, of Native America, but more importantly about you know, social justice, uh, issues around, right. uh, Indian country and, and how history and politics and economics, uh, collide, uh, through, this, through that narrative of, of, of Native America and the history of Native America and how that history is so visceral and such a part of, of the struggles that uh, folks across Indian country today are, are, are dealing with. And, and, you, and again, using history as such a powerful tool to to help um, rectify many of these and to help address many of these long issues. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so as as Venables as my uh, mentor, you know, I, I decided I wanted to, you know, continue pursuing that and and to really think about being being from uh, Long Island, New York. Never really thought about Indian country, um, but mm-hmm. uh, thinking about those issues from uh, from a social again from a kind of a social justice perspective that really went beyond just Native America, but uh, all you know many different groups who have been oppressed or have been marginalized um, throughout his throughout U.S. and early American history. And, um, you know, I guess I was really interested in trying to tackle those, some of those issues as a, through a historical lens. Right. So, um, so at Cornell, I worked at, I worked, at a couple of different places, uh, mostly with, uh, again, marginalized communities, communities, at risk communities, mostly, uh, uh, at risk youth in and around New York city. Uh, and then I ended up in, um, Working for a bit at the on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota, and again those those issues that I mentioned that I um, first first had was exposed to in Cornell. You know, you really I really saw that on, on the reservation and and the, you know how history um, plays such a role in in, in the lives of, of these folks, but also how many folks on the reservation um, and across across Indian country. Again, we're using history and to, and you know, hiring tribal historians and and other experts to help uh, preserve cultural legacies, but also, again, to help advance economic and political um, uh, initiatives you know, mm-hmm. to protect Indian country, protect tribal sovereignty, and to protect environments, too. So, so as I worked in these different areas, um, I increasingly became interested, in, again, they Using the historical lens, but also thinking of, of the environment as well. You know, thinking about environmental racism and how that uh, plays a role in, in in Indian country, but also throughout you know, in urban areas as well. Right. Right. So, um, so you know, I also so then I went to uh, graduate school at Santa Cruz, and I continued uh, thinking about these things. Uh, it, it, I started the PhD program there in history and. And I worked with uh my dissertation advisor was Elizabeth Haas, who works on very similar issues uh in California, native California. Mm-hmm. She's uh written lots of uh work uh and, and worked a lot with uh several different tribes in California on re examining the mission history and re examining uh, the commemoration of of um, of folks like Sarah who's uh, mm-hmm. just was canonized right. uh, recently and uh, just really working closely with the, uh, the California tribes and, and helping them capture and, and present their own indigenous history of, of, of California.
2: Right.
0: So, so, so basically uh, this book um, is really a reflection of all those experiences. And I, and for me, history and, and my role as a historian, um, ultimately it's about connecting the the uh, serving communities uh, who we're writing about, but also, um, getting people to think about just the, those really close, that history is, is so present. History is such a part of, right. of the political, economic and cultural infrastructure that we all have inhabit now. And, and for me, Native America is a, is a, one of the most illuminating ways to, 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 um, Thinking back
2: to understand that. No, I, I agree so
0: entirely. Answer, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I appreciate the answer and, so, and the you know your connections sure. with the, you know history and you know social justice issues. I think um, you know that's a lot of what kind of drew me to the subject matter as well. Um, you know, I think when we look at right how people see the world. You know, whether you want to say that, sure. you know, worldview, perspective, whatever ide- ideology, all of that's shaped by history so much, right? And how history is told, how it's preserved, presented, et cetera, how it's interpreted. And uh, so so definitely I see exactly where you're coming from yeah. there. What else are, you, what are you interested in? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, sorry. No, I was going to say, go ahead, keep
0: going. Oh, so it's that, uh, you know, um, of course the borderlands are another,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's what fascinates. That's what I'm interested in, in borderlands history because of that, you say for the same reason, you know, and the borders borderlands is really, that's really where you, the, the, you know, the periphery, so to speak, really in many ways determines, um, what the, the heartland or the core institutions and values, you know, they, they spread through the borderlands uh, and they're tested on the borderlands and,
2: and,
0: and you really get a sense of the, you know, you really get a sense of the human communities that are, Impact in of them, but also are able to shape them in you know in unique and and um, unexpected ways. And I think um, that's that's those are those little, those little niches that what I'm really interested in. That's what, and really that's what I'm, that's that's kind of what led me to, the, to this uh, book and this this case study.
1: Roger. Gotcha, good. Well, how about you talk a little bit more about that, about, you know, this particular region in general. So you talked about how your, your interest in Native American uh, in environmental history kind of sure. developed, but how did you come to determine, you know, on, on this region and, and this people?
0: Sure. Um, well, a couple of different things. Um, I mean, initially, uh, so, I mean, the other thing that interests me on Native American history, and, and as, especially as I was thinking about a topic for my dissertation, was, this, this notion of hidden in plain sight you know that there are so many aspects of our history that are just hidden in, in, right in plain sight and I think uh, Native American history is definitely serves as one of those examples uh, across North America across the Americas you know particularly across North America where you know people don't necessarily think about Native America in a sustained way right uh, um, so so in, in that sense um, what drew me to this Colorado River, which is really what the book is about—the Lower Colorado, regionally speaking. Um, the Lower Colorado River is, is a is a waterway that's played such a huge role in in the borderland history of the borderland and history of of the West of the American West in particular, mm-hmm. and also northern Mexico. You know, it supplies obviously, uh, you know, a huge amounts of it. Uh, okay agricultural uh, water. Right. But also uh it feeds cities that we so all of the southwest cities from Phoenix to Vegas to Exactly to Los Angeles to San Diego. So I mean we millions and millions of people rely on on the the dams that's that divert the water and the irrigation that so irrigation ditches and channels that divert the water. Um that's such a life uh it's like a it's a of of and not only the West but of course much of the food that's gets produced uh in, in these places, particularly in the Imperial Valley and northern mm-hmm. Mexico, gets mm-hmm. ex, you know, gets exported all throughout the country. it's okay. um, so, and it's one of those things no one really thinks about the Colorado River yeah here. Even during the drought, you know, that of course is more thought of it with people thinking more about water conservation now, but um the Colorado River is really not it's just kind of an afterthought. Um so true. To, yeah. to the mainstream and, um, so that really got me interested in thinking, you know, so what, the kind of thinking of not only the, of the, so there's this huge weight that the Colorado River, uh, you know, there's huge shadow that, that looms over, if you will, looms over all these cities that so many people live in, including myself. Yet, uh, the, the early, the history of it, um, really has been limited to, Historical, you know, the historical documentation, which right. a lot of it is, kind of, is obviously from the perspective of non-native people mm-hmm. and non-native histories. So, uh, and and much of the study, much of the work that was, and incredible work that has been done on on the Colorado River, especially the kind of the early American Colorado River and colonial Colorado Rivers, mm-hmm. has largely been done by anthropologists and archaeologists um, and ethnohistorians mm-hmm. looking at. Uh, non—you know what we might say—non-traditional, or usually the sources that historians don't go to first. So, so um, as I saw on the Colorado River as I was thinking about um, projects as a place that's been somewhat overlooked in terms, of, at least in terms of native native history, by historians. Uh, a place that's very relevant to the lives of millions of people today, but also has this long um history that's been documented, just not what's been documented in material culture and archaeology right. and, and right. oral histories. So I saw an opportunity to kinda of, to synthesize um these fields um and then also ultimately to kind of flip the narrative to think of the Colorado River from a from an indigenous perspective and yeah, then, to look at it from an indigenous perspective you have to look at a much longer time frame. A
2: mm-hmm.
0: much longer historic time frame and then that's where you have to start thinking about ecological time and thinking right. about the environment. So so the more I thought about it, um you know, the more I realized I had a lot of work to a lot of fields to <laughs> try to master and uh you know, I'd assemble my dissertation committee in in in, in ways that I might not have not otherwise, which is great so I had a uh, renowned uh, archaeologist uh Judith who, um who is an expert on uh, historic pottery in the southwest who really helped me get me grounded in the in the literature on on you know, on uh, material culture and in the archaeology and how to read a you know how to even read archaeological reports,
2: and, right? Uh-huh. Um,
0: just how to understand the vast the field of literature on trade, on pre-contact trade, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things. So, and then so, so, um, so that allowed me to. And then I also had to have, uh, you know, I had to understand, uh, you know, colonial Latin America, you know, colonial Latin American history, particularly borderland history, right? And uh, get grounded in, in not only, of course, in, in the English language. Uh, historiography but also the Spanish language historiography and so it, it, it was one of those things that just kept, kept piling on but also it's, it made it more interesting and more fascinating for me And um, you know it, it ultimately I chose to take a, a big picture approach to the project and, mm-hmm. um, um, you know that has its downsides but I think again when you think of the Colorado River and, the, and this um Sure, you have to have this. You have to have a large, a, a larger, wider uh, lens.
1: Right, um, right, and it's you know that you, certainly comes across in in, in your narrative and um, in. How you describe this interior world, you know, the pre-Columbian interior world, and then how the the book tracks it, right? Tracks the development of, you know, the political economy, the social relations of, you yeah. know, both the the indigenous groups, and then as well as their interactions with others, you know, uh, throughout this yeah. interior, world, interior world that now, uh, right, encompasses essentially uh, six modern uh, U.S. states and you know parts of Mexico, including right, Baja California sure. exactly. and uh, the, you know the northern exactly. states of the the main. Uh, portions.
0: Exactly. And all those indigenous nations, you know, recognized mm-hmm. by, I mean, uh, by the U S particular, um, that live along Colorado, whatever, have, that have unique, um, uh, water rights, you know, they have water rights that are different than, than their relationship between the state and federal government. You know, Indian nations have, have a treaty, you know, have different treaties that allow them, um, Different kinds of access or lack of access depending on the situation. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But you know, that are kind of a government to government relationship that, that are, that are, um, really, well, that's what fascinated me was, again, is this idea of the present. But you look at the Colorado River, the little Colorado, and you could see all these, uh, indigenous groups, they, uh, are still there, you know. Right. I mean, they, they weren't, they were, they were, you know, that many, and that's the part of the book is about you know, the Spanish trying to colonize and then uh and then and Mexico and then the US. Um you know, especially the US trying to remove uh different indigenous groups and they they couldn't do it. Uh, they just weren't able to for all sorts of reasons. But right. the important thing is that they couldn't do it, that they that they're that they're there still and that they're able to assert the relative degree of political and economic uh, power or autonomy at least. Um, which, when you think of how important the Colorado River is now, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not inconsequential or insidious
1: again. No, that's so true. So, and your your point yeah. there, um, you said a while back, you know, that the, you referred to the Colorado River as, as kind of the prize of the region, and uh, right. you know, right. I haven't, I, I, I appreciate that because I haven't really, I didn't really, I don't really think of that, of course. Um, um, you know, when we look at the, the land that was, you know, the land session from Mexico, uh, oftentimes yeah. we speak so much about the, the gold, right? And of course these, these weren't things that right. were known when, when the land was ceded. Um, they're kind of gladder like developments. But if you're looking at the two prizes, right, you got gold in the Sierras and then you have right. the river. Um, uh, now the Colorado River right. exactly. probably, right. um, functioned or factioned, uh, fit more into maybe considerations on that land session. I'm not really sure. Um, cause sure. The, the gold itself sure. was really, you know, not known at the time, but, uh, no, right. I think that right. that's a great perspective and it, and, um, you know, I think it's one of the, yep. the, per- the lenses that I appreciate in environmental history and ecological history yeah. provides, right? It yeah. helps us to show it, Cause you can see as you track over the, what is it we're covering in this book? Um, what, uh, a little over 300 years, but, you know, fast forward sure. 500 years, how vital the region sure, still sure. is because of the, you know, the yeah, river. Yeah, great,
0: yeah.
2: Great, great point.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, uh, thanks, yeah, I think that what makes it also interesting, I think, is you mentioned, that, you know, of course, gold, you know, the, conquistador, you know, the, the mind, conquistador mindset, right, which is mm-hmm. obviously simplistic simplistic uh, phrase, right, but right, there right. is there was, you know, early colonization in Latin America, you know there, there was that element, right? And I think um, what makes for me the Colorado River interesting is 1540. I mean, that's right at the beginning. That's that's early. You know, that's just this is um, you know this is an you know, early period of colonization mm-hmm. for for Spain, and and the fact that this, the Colorado River was recognized as a strategic right choke point, a strategic place um, that. You know, and a lot of it, obviously, like you said, the rivers are always, seen that with rivers that connect to oceans. Um, but, you know, what what made it important is that the, 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 uh, the, the earliest explorers, uh, Spanish explorers, you know, saw the vibrant trade. They saw the markets, the indigenous markets, and they recognized that there was a there there. You know, there was something that they could tap into. Um, and that's what makes it important. It was always, it always was strategic Um in one way or the other. So
2: right.
0: It's not that it was it's not that I mean part of my argument is it's not that this place was just uh, discovered by, you know, Europeans or non native people late mm-hmm. in the game because it's so far west and, you know, that's why the Native people were, were able to withstand some of the onslaught of colonialism or that's why they're still here because it happened later. They were, you know, this is one of the earliest you know, in the sixteenth century, so this this is really early on and and usually that early encounter equates to um, demographic declines, um, uh-huh. cultural, uh-huh. you know, cultural um, clashes, et cetera. Um, but in this instance, you see, you know, in some ways very different uh interaction. Or, you know, or, or comparable to other parts where Native people uh were able to do, to, uh, maintain their autonomy and also exert some power, of course, thinking of most native, any native groups who were engaged in the fur trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, the Hodenosaunee, the Iroquois, or the Comanches later on, you know, the Cherokees, there, there are certain native groups that were, that were able to really, um, that knew how to work, work, uh, these different colonial powers against each other. Right, right. And, you know, it's always there, there's that comparison, there's that, you know, comparison that, that I draw. Um, but all, in other words, it, it, it was unique. I think in the sense there wasn't any indigenous state or indigenous, uh, empire or indigenous, um, group that controlled everything. Right. Such a diverse, culturally diverse, linguistically diverse, economically diverse place and environmentally such a dynamic place, um, that, you know, migration and movement and all of these, um, Resulting uh, training networks that that evolve as a result of that really determine the the way people are going to interact with each other, whether right. you're indigenous or not.
1: Let's talk about uh, I think that a bit more. We've talked about how the um, you've, you introduced us to the to the interior world, the pre-Columbian interior world, and and how the the rivers, the Colorado River, the Gila River, really the the basis of um, the networks and the relationships that exist among. Um, mm-hmm. And that are formed amongst you know this very diverse in you know, a region, an expansive region, uh, right? So can you talk yeah, more about yeah. what the the interior world looked like? You know, like its social geography. Sure. Uh, what were the what were some of the sure. people, the relationships, and you know, food systems, mobility, th- those types of things um, that existed in this world, um, uh, pre you know, in the pre-Columbian era?
0: Sure. Yeah. This, this this is the first chapter of my this first chapter in the in the book, which Took the longest, and is, is the longest in the book. Um, um, and for me, in many ways, it's, it really sets the tone for the rest of the. It sets the the it's it set the grooves, if you will, mm-hmm. The ecological, cultural, like economic grooves that really determine the patterns of interaction post Columbus you know, right. in a, a post Columbian world. And so, well, it was really defined, You know, the, I start the book. You know, even though the books. The title is 1540 to 1859. I really start my first chapter starts in the um, in the 14th, 13th, to 14th century, uh, where you, you have um, something called the Little Ice Age, the global phenomenon, mm-hmm. which you have a kind of a cooling of the planet, and uh, and, the, and then as a result, you have these different environmental changes across across the globe. Um, and in the Southwest, what you have is an increasingly drier place you have the shrinking of of lakes and diversion of rivers, and you so therefore you have the movement of people uh, dispersed uh, across a wider territory where you know so groups that have, have lived around what is now the salted sea.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some of these indigenous groups now are you know li- living farther and farther apart due to environmental changes, and as a result of some environmental changes,' also engaging in um, different forms of production and trade. So what 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 the world was like? This this interior world was like uh, was dynamic. It was filled, again migrations, people mobile, communities moving um, in different directions. Um, you have the the reliance, great reliance on kind of niche prod products depending on the environment. So you have a, a huge amount of literally millions of shell beads, which are produced on the the Channel Islands. Right. Um and used as a form of currency. And you know, and one of the things I do in the book I I try to and just a sliver really, uh document some of the some of the, the larger uh, um, archaeological sites that you know find tens of thousands of these at some of these whether grave sites or just um, villages right that are being excavated and pre contact pre Columbian uh indigenous villages and you see the how you see these beads, uh, you see them in California, of course. You see them up and down the coast. You see them mm-hmm. as far east as, as Texas, Wow. well into Baja and Sonora and Sinaloa. So you see, you know, you see these beads that come from the Channel Islands being traded uh, across these distances and in large numbers. So that, that and how you know, did they do? Like,
1: they probably serve like a, a, a as a currency. Um, you know, what was the. Uh, what was the, the, the desire, you know, for these beads, you know, as as you sure. know, in, in this sure. vast expanse that you're you're explaining here?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean this is the this is one of the questions that, that archaeologists are, you know, they're still um looking at and increasingly, you know, depending on the the short answer is dependent on the the indigenous group. So right. you can see uh-huh. the Chumash, for instance, who and the and the Tongva, but particularly the Chumash who were the, real, were the producers of these, you know, this was their territory, this is their, this is, they control that, the production of these beads. And, you know, and when, I, when I say shell beads, it, it, I, I point that out in the book, is we're talking about really, really, we're talking about precision, we're talking about right. mechanized,
1: mm-hmm. you know, they're
0: all handmade obviously, but, you know, mechanized, they're labor, drilled.
1: They're drilled, regimented,
0: right? yeah, drilled, they're drilled, um, you know, and when you go on the, on the, the shoreline of the, of the Shell Islands, you can just see the, you know, the remnants and the kind of the of just millions of drills, micro beads and micro drill uh, beads, and all kinds of, um, you know, all kinds of uh, products related to to the production of it. So, you know, over sustained period of time, people who are doing it, you know, and one one uh, bead would take you know takes several hours. To to make and and wow. these are you know are a couple of millimeters, yeah, um, a couple of millimeters So small. They're, they're precise. They're and they're very uniform. So mm-hmm. then you, again, like, you look at the, this as an example. Where you look at the material culture, and you could, you know, without spec you know, without being too speculative, you mm-hmm. can see th- these are folks who are producing these for because uh, of demand. You know, right. not just simply curiosity exactly. exactly. or simply a You know, ornamental. I mean, obviously, it's ornamental, but um, it's used as as a way to to link cultures as well. So,
2: um,
0: there is there are different standardization. You know, different archaeologists have pointed to different um, uh, measures of standardization. So, uh, and a lot of those. So, there are records in the colonial, in the Spanish colonial documents that say, you know, um, Mojaves, for instance, come from you know, from close to the Colorado river, uh, would encounter, um, Spanish, Franc- Franciscans and talk about trading beads that would, you know, one horse would equal roughly a bead, a string of beads going from your elbow to your middle finger. So mm-hmm. I, you know, you could actually see a, a, you know, some kind of a standardization. Right. And, and, and I'm not saying that, I don't think anyone is saying that it was like, uh, you know, I mean there was a currency that everyone followed, but right. there was a conversation. There was a, there was mm-hmm. a sophistication and a complexity that was not unlike many other parts of the early modern world. You know, and I think this, this book is really a, an argument that tries to, tries to meet this indigenous history on the same terms that you would meet other early modern histories.
2: Right, right, you know, right.
0: Whether it be Europe, Africa, Asia, you know, and, and that's, that's part of the critique is that uh, somehow that history was, uh, you know, not as, you know, just because it wasn't as well, well documented, therefore you can't really draw those conclusions when right. you, know, you actually can if you look at a lot of the material culture. No, so it's
2: so, it's so beads true, are though. one
0: example. but
1: Right, beads, it makes them, right, yeah, textiles, so, grasses, pottery. I mean, and you mentioned these things right, are mass-produced exactly. commodities within exactly. this I mean, interior world, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, the baskets are a great example because it's such a, baskets are to me are the most fascinating because as, there's a, there is a, today there's a native California basket weavers association. I and mean, that is it, an incredible, um, you know, incredibly vibrant uh, art form that's alive and well across native mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. And, and the baskets, you know, it's just, then I, I document some of this, and a lot of and a lot of the stuff again uh in the book I draw on archaeologists and and ecologists and and folks who are looking at folks who are working with the tribes and folks who are uh, again looking at the mature culture so none of it uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is admittedly you know just pointing it out you know kind of to bringing it into the historical record right. anyway
2: right exactly
0: and uh but the baskets are fascinating because you have Again, it's such a, such a, they're so versatile. I mean, there are mm-hmm. dozens of different types of baskets, And I, I have a couple of, I have a, I have a table in the book that just highlights a few of them. Right. You know, they, that are, that are watertight, that can be used for all kinds of things. But, and they're lighter, lightweight, and that you could carry goods in over long, long distances. Because right. I mean, we're talking about vast distances, hundreds of miles, mm-hmm. that people are, 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 are carrying stuff, um, on foot because there were, you know, in the pre-Columbian world there weren't any draft animals or horses <laughs> right. um, and it's part of the continent. So that, and of course, this talking about hot, dry, desolate places the Mojave Desert, uh, one of the most desolate places on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet you have an, an incredible uh, instance, or there's an incredible amount, uh, uh, rather, of, of petroglyphs and rock art that's been documented. It's just just to show how many people were traveling through there and using it for, um, you know, primarily the, the petroglyphs are, are, um, you know, they are indicative of, of spiritual, spiritual, uh, yeah, the spiritual meaning that many non-Native people will never have access to. Um, but, you know, a lot of those, there are other rocks, there are other petroglyphs that point to watering holes or point to places you can, yeah, you know, find certain kinds of dresses, you know, almost places that help travel along type of, you know, that kind of, right. that kind of message, you know, if you will. So, in that way, you know, that you see that you can see those same kinds of things happen, you know, in the, in the Silk Road you know, or other kinds of long distance, right, right. trading networks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and again, it's not to equate the two, but it's just to show that, you know, these are similar kinds of human communities that are experiencing this, this early modern world that are shaping this early modern world. So uh right. so yeah, and baskets were amazing because just the the amount of I mean you know, many times baskets and until recently the basket weaving we've seen is almost it's like a, a craft almost not really a, <laughs> yeah, yeah an art. you know, you think of baskets, you know, it's and again it's just like that it's like that 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 stereotype that, you know, needs to be dismantled, right? Right. And I think uh the 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 thing about baskets you have to not only do you have to uh Burn selectively certain types of grasses so that the right ones grow. The ones that you could bend and use, like deer grass, for instance. Then you have to harvest them in a certain way. Then you have to harvest, you know, uh, hundreds of them. I don't have the numbers up hand. I do have them in the book. The, the one basket, you know, hundreds and hundreds of of uh, blades of grass have to be harvested.
2: Right.
0: And then you have to do, then you have to weave them. So and you can imagine the 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 labor. And the, the organization of communities around that. exactly
2: right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah so. the organization it took to do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. right. I mean, exactly. I need mean, to mention to grow it, to grow the specific blade of grass, right? And right. Then, and then exactly. to harvest it, right? And then to dry it out, and then exactly. you know, so just the various stages that are involved in producing, yeah. uh, you know, this object, exactly. right? And and it's certainly, and exactly. viewed in that way. It, you totally now see, like, you see, dispel the myth that this is just some neat type of craft where this is a desired commodity. Right. A commodity yeah. that is, you know, very useful when you're traveling, say, from San Diego right. to, uh, right. you know, either Southern Utah or the Southwestern, yeah. you know, corner, the Four Corners area, right? right? It's, uh, right. I would see why right. this is so desirable. Certainly. <laughs> certainly, certainly. You,
0: mean, you, you know, nothing not to go off on a tangent, but just remind me of one of the other, just to follow up with this, your initial question about, you know, how he came up with this idea. And I mentioned the Colorado river. So in, in graduate school, I had a chance to read, uh, James Brooks's wonderful book, um, Captain's and cousins, which, uh, prize winning book, which looked at the, the, uh, the evolution and expansion of borderlands slavery in New Mexico, and really cut across indigenous and Spanish and Mexican and American, uh, communities. And, uh, what I love about the book, one of the things I love about the book are the maps. And um, one particular map showed a, a trail called the Old Spanish Trail, which mm-hmm. connected Santa Fe with Los Angeles. And um, I got me thinking about, again, we've been talking about this idea of, of goods and com- indigenous commodities, but also indigenous space. You know, what does that look like? And was the Old Spanish Trail actually a, an old you know, an indigenous trail? And how, um, you know, what does I say about migration and movement and, and again, and the, the role of native economies in shaping, um, Spanish colonial economies and then mm-hmm. later Mexican economies and American economies. So, uh, I started doing a little more digging in, into that old Spanish trail and, um, what I found actually was really fascinating. One of the things I found is that there's this, uh, following the, um, Old Spanish Trail Association, which commemorates the you know, the beginning of this trail, just like other groups commemorate the Lewis and Clark Trail or the right. Old Santa mm-hmm. Fe Trail. So there's that kind of uh, culture of commemoration. And uh, in fact, it was just recently by George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, made signed an act called the Old Spanish Trail Preservation Act, or something like that. And basically the idea was to make it a national historic trail and then it gets some you know, protection and it gets certain types of funding and um it allows people to to keep the trail alive and keep right. the memory of the trail alive so i so that, and I, that cuts and the reason I bring that up is just to you know again it, it hammers in that idea of of uh of the importance of public commemoration and 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 uh and getting that history, re- re- re-examining the history of these of these borderlands, uh, it many times happens through uh, through the public first, the monuments, and then, then the historians come back. sometimes,
2: right? Uh, right.
1: I'm I agree. Sorry,
0: I could,
1: no, I, oh, I agree. I can hear you fine. And I got a idea. helicopter
0: overhead. Sorry. Oh, that's that's Hopefully fine. that out. <laughs> <That's>
1: fine. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, you're you started to mention. Um, uh, in addition to you know, the importance of public history, um, uh, as I see, the one thing even in that that is sometimes lost in in public history, um, even in, in commemoration and whatnot, uh, particularly when we're looking at Indigenous uh, Americans, yeah, Indigenous right. communities and societies, is the influence they had on the region even after exactly. so-called contact. Right. So you started to right. talk about how you know their the the Indigenous networks and relationships of the. Uh, interior world, and, and this is right—the the subjects of you know, say, the middle of the book. Um, how those networks and relationships shape, you know, the early colonial and then you know, emerging Mexican state and American state economies. Can you can you talk about that a bit more um, about just how um, you know, just influential the the both the trading networks and the relationships as well as the commodities produced by uh, the the indigenous within the interior world were on the emerging. You know, you know, Pacific Rim trade and you know other you know sure. transcontinental trade, et cetera.
0: Sure, I think yeah, I think um, well, I mean, I argue that they have an enormous impact. Um, and what and one of the one of the reasons is just because of the you know it's a there's no denying that this region is a uh, climate is harsh and mm-hmm. it's there are you can't really stray off the path. You know, you your your life would you know your life is at stake if you're right. if you you know you run out of water or you know yeah and the thing about europeans um of course they they bring their animals right and right animals need grass they need water, and that limits their you know that 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 puts them on a very predictable path to skip from one mission to the next or one town to the next right and um so what you start seeing and of course and those roads that they that they used were free and many of them were pre-Columbians. Indigenous roads because right, right. they were also connected along water sources and places you can get food and, and shelter, etc. Um, so that automatically set up a just the space. So uh, these these colonial economies really were inhabiting a, an indigenous space. Just just that alone, and then of course then you have the uh, the the fact that on. Oh, no. Oh, okay, sorry, I thought it died. No, you're um the fact that that they that these colonial economies also of course depended on indigenous labor to mm-hmm. produce crops and raise the animals. Um so and then and, and they're in these very isolated in particular Sonora, for instance, you know, very isolated places the Spanish missions were that uh were the majority of people were were from different indigenous communities, sometimes friendly and sometimes enemies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, so there was this complex, uh, cultural intercultural world that, that many France, Jesuits and Franciscans had to navigate and some did well. And many, many, uh, many didn't. And then uh, the other thing that really, where you see this real presence and importance of indigenous, um, indigenous influence on these on uh, kind of this early uh, colonialism or at least on the Spanish settlements. Cause in many cases it wasn't, there wasn't any colonialism. There's just attempts to, to settle. Right. Um, and what you see is, uh, the, the role of increasingly of, of borderlands slavery and, and the so native people started wanting, they started, uh, getting access and, and wanting, uh, European products, like for instance right. wheat mm-hmm. um, so you have he had many native groups uh, particularly along the Colorado river where you have you have the predictable water source uh the, the quichons for instance um, were major major indigenous group they they grew wheat they and they grew pretty well in fact, they still grow wheat today, um wheat and cotton uh, on the on, on their on their land, mm-hmm. so you, you and of course horses and 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 particularly horses, but also cattle and, and sheep, you see that throughout the borderlands uh, being not only a you know tool for Spanish expansion, but also indigenous expansions You know, you have of course you have the Navajos who become really powerful. Uh, they have really powerful pastoral economies, sheep sheep herders, and and we and, and other borderlands and and. and also the borderlands I talk about, uh, horse, you have a kind of a captive rating of both native and non-native, uh, particularly, you know, primarily women and children from these from these towns.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Um, and rated on horseback. So you have a, you have an expansion of of this kind of horse for for, for people, you know, the trade, but also uh, the horses enable that, the expansion of that. So these European tools are being adopted by Native people and shaping because of that borderlands expansion of these indigenous borderlands through this uh, captivity network. You have European, Spanish, uh, and later Mexicans and Americans having to, you know, when they try to subdue it, they they can't. You know, that's they don't have that power. So it's so, it, and you see that in California as well. The California economy was constantly under um, under threat from these raiders. Hence the hence the title Traders and Raiders. Right. So yeah, these raiders that coming from the Colorado River. And you did a lot of documentation on just the preoccupation with with particularly Mojave uh raiders coming and oh the Mojave's were blamed and and the Utes were blamed for, for many of these raids. And,
2: right. Right. And
0: truth there are many, many groups that were involved in it. Um but they would go and, and poach some of the missions and, and uh, the ranchos later on in in the basin, the LA basin, and in San Diego as well. So that's an indigenous centered or an indigenous you know, influenced economy. That's driven. That's driven by native needs and right. and, uh, and desires and and a cultural values, et cetera. But of course, it's not truly indigenous in a way. It's, it's a borderlands.
2: Right, right, right. It's
0: a borderlands in the sense because again, it's these are non native uh goods and and animals um and of course many spaniards and 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 later mexicans and americans all benefited from captives you know, had their own captives and 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 took took part in the trade
1: so right, and where, where you uh, really see the borderlands yeah. framework I think working uh very well i mean you you focus particularly on on these these two very important tools right trading and and rating, and so yeah. part of the yeah. you know that rating was you know for the purpose of um, obtaining captives and you you discussed yeah. in the earlier part of the book how captivity you know of course was a pre-columbian a feature pre-columbian society and it it worked more but more along the forms of diplomacy yet it transitions to a commodity um as you know the borderlands economy develops right can you talk a bit more about that transition about how central because i think it's you know a lot of this speaks to the the stereotypes uh you know of uh native america and you know indigenous societies that uh you know how we see them represented in, in popular, you know, either movies or other types of, you know, popular uh, you know, products uh, or representations sure. that, you know, that's what Indians did, right? They were warriors and they were raiders right. and right. They, they stole people and they were just brutal. Right. But, <laughs> right. but uh, you know, but right. captivity, again, was a very important part, a feature of this economy and there was, so they yeah. were feeling a desire and a need. So can you talk a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Yeah, I think this is where like a comparative lens is so you know, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of that as compared. You know, thinking of comparative history because especially during this time period, because you could see similar parts. You could see the kind of, you know, borderland slavery, captivity, the idea of of captivity and diplomacy as being so central to so many parts of the world, uh, not just the state of America. Any places that were not controlled by a state you know, that were on the edges, were on the borderlands. We Mm can see this, and of course, throughout West African societies, and um, you can even see in parts of Europe, you can see that, you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout Asia. And, uh, um, so this is a, this is a a mode of, this is an economic and political, it's a political, economic, um, tool or device or uh, convention that's, that you see in many parts of the world. So in that sense, it, 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 first of all, it debunks the stereotype that natives were somehow uniquely, as you said, you know, that they, this is what they had the, the monopoly on this, or that they, just, they invented this, or that this right. is what they were all about. And so you see, you know, the first thing you say is, well, it's happening in all other parts, all, all, all the borderlands throughout the, across the planet. Right. And, but the other thing is that um the commodification part is what's key, is that... Native communities were 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 also you know, human communities that were being uh, drawn in to this kind of expanding, more regimented, for lack of a better word, capitalist uh, world system. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm painting a broad brush here, but there is a you know the, the idea of markets, global markets, and demand and population and all these things going hand in hand to, you know, increase, increase the demand for a certain types of products. Um, and, and the people to, 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 um, produce many of those products. And, uh, right. so I think, um, you see that, you see that in borderland and of course, in and you see that in child slavery, that's the most obvious, um, example of that. But, so I, I, I feel like that, um, you know, one of arguments I was trying to make is that that to to tell a you know tell like a a story of these indigenous communities as as communities as individual communities, just like other borderlands communities that were getting swept up in this. Um, you know, they took this economic turn, this political turn. Uh, part of it was defensive, but part of it was also about expanding uh, their economics uh, or political influence. And then once, once that choice is made, uh, it, it just kind of fed on itself. It fed on mm-hmm. its, you know, it, it reverberated and, and expanded re- very, very rapidly. Right. right. So, uh, and you can see that in, you see that throughout history that, you know, history is not inevitable that there, are, you know, there are choices that once they're made, it, it takes you down a certain path. Right.
2: right.
0: And, um, society's fall, you know, rise and fall around, and communities right. disappear or thrive as a result of it. So, uh, you know, a lot, so much of what I'm trying to do in this book is really, again, as I said before, just to treat the, these actors as, you know, as historical figures, right. uh, historical communities that lived in a certain time and a certain place and uh, were in, influenced by these long-standing. Mm-hmm. Indigenous, as long as the indigenous time and space, but also we're becoming, uh, like every other part of the world, swept up into this global, you know, now we now live in a globalized, you know, globalized, uh, society. Right. right? We're all, all, especially when you talk about, you know, the, you know, the economy and food systems, as you mentioned before, and, you know, you start seeing that as well.
1: Right. And as you're so, saying in the, you point out in the book, what, what they're experiencing on the ground here is, you know, as a result of being, you know, uh, drawn into or in, incorporated, whatever you want to say, uh, into a, a more of this global system that is emerging is you have, uh, things like, right, land encroachment, food shortages, disease. So population right, decline. Right. All of these are, you know, are, these are factors that are really driving the need for labor in this region as more people are coming to it, you know, again, we're talking about, we're taking a long breath of, you know, view of time here, 300 years, but increasingly yeah. that's what's happening, right? More people are Coming into and settling the region and disrupting existing, um, you know, livelihoods and, and, you know, yeah. net trade networks and, uh, the production of certain commodities, right? So you have this, you, know, yeah. you mentioned livestock and livestock's a huge thing, right? We have yeah. just an eradication sure. of grazing lands and, and waterways and things right. of that sort, right? And, um, and so this is really a, think- a strategic type of development, right? Uh, in,
2: yeah.
1: in taking existing practice and it, in, in ways, captivity continued to be used as, you know, in, in diplomatic situations. Sure. But, um, Absolutely. really the transition you explain is, you know, this, this drive for the need for labor, um, you know, really makes it, uh, a commodity that is being then serviced by, you know, this economy and thereby the rating. And so that's why it's a, it's a key feature of the rating of the captivity. And then you have the, the livestock rating is the, the other portion of it. Right.
0: Exactly. I think, uh, I mean, you you really hit it. The one thing I should say, it's important to, I mean, to think about this story. I mean, it's true. There is a, you know, the, the problem with the way Native American history uh, is told um, and taught especially, um, even when you're, even with folks who are sympathetic to the, the Native story, so to speak, there is a. Yeah, you know, there's a, an air of inevitability. After all, we don't live in Comanche idea, We don't live right. in an interior right. world. You know, exactly. we live in, you know, right. United States, right? We don't even live in the borderlands. We live in, I mean, there. I mean, people argue that we, there are, obviously, like LA is a cultural borderlands in many ways. but <laughs> right. exactly. The, the, the political economic framework we're in right now is this nation state, the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we think that that's the, you know, people have argued, uh, where you know we reached the end of history, right that's kind of <laughs> right. this is where we're at, and this is it and obviously that's being upended and I think what's important exactly. about it being upended for all kinds of reasons is Native America itself is still you know native America's still here there's a history that's still unfolding um, uh, it's uneven in terms of you know where where you are in Indian country in terms of yeah you know, how well native people are experiencing. Some economic revival or cultural revival. But it's happening across Indian country. And that's a new, that's a completely different story. You know, it's a completely right. different, um, and that is a, you know, that is so profound. I and mean, I mean, who knows how, what people will, will say in a 100 or 200 years, but it's a profound, um, you know, it, it forces us to, the historians, to kind of try to. Try to shy away from, or at least try to be careful around that idea of yes, natives. They fought, you know they they were able to hold off, you know, forces of modernity, and then but then they succumbed to, you know, they succumb to it. Right. And I think what I like about my story is yes, there is that aspect. Um, again, just you just look at the, the political reality economic reality but and demographic Native people reality, all the right, huh, demographic yeah. reality as well but the the fact that you can't discount the fact that these indigenous groups who have been here been here I mean, in the Colorado River region um, you know for 500 years more or more right um, because many of them did many of them didn't show up there until these droughts and the fertilization, right. so it wasn't that they were there forever. that's right. you know, mm-hmm. thing. That's that's inaccurate to say that as well. Right. Uh, but so they were there. They've been here, and they're still there because they were able to hold off, and they were able to accomplish an extraordinary feat, which is to not get removed from, not not be removed, and also uh, to survive, and also to to survive and hold on to an incredibly vitally strategic. Part of the, you know, the U.S. economy, right? That's you know, think right. of the Colorado River. That's that is a, you know, that's a something that should be, you know. And I'm not trying to, to exaggerate that,
2: but right, there, right.
0: there's something that's really important about that. That's you know, it, it just makes you. It just it it makes you hold the the history. It, you know, it tries to help you shy away from the, the inevitability.
1: Story. Yes, yes, yes. You so, know, and, and what I
0: love yeah. about Okay, oh, One of the, one of the points about that, just to, um, one of the, just, it, for a specific example in, in the book. I talk about the, the Quichon revolt, mm-hmm. which occurred mm-hmm. in the uh, 1780s in, in the Colorado River. And this is an example of Spanish, uh, you know, using that, their, their colonial model, which was, you know, the, the missions, the Franciscan, in particular, missionaries, uh, to establish the towns, kind of the anchors for expansion. Um, and they were invited. Uh, so uh, Garces, who was the, the Franciscan uh, priest to, um established t- two missions mm-hmm. on the Colorado River in the Quechan territory, he was invited by Quechan leaders. It wasn't that he just showed up. You know, he they wanted him there, and they wanted him there because they wanted Spanish goods. They wanted to get into that their enemies, the the Maricopas and the uh, Odoms, these other indigenous groups. Um, they they were getting access to Spanish dudes, horses, it's you know crops, etc. And they wanted to have access to that, so they invited them in. And then they, when they very quickly, they realized they were not useful to them. Spanish mm-hmm. were not useful, and then they basically burned their missions down and killed Garces and and uh, you know captured the rest of the folks um, and trade. You know ultimately traded off gave them back to the, to the Spanish, the captives, but they rejected that Spanish model. Right. And they retained, and they were able to hold on to, you know, they were not They were never colonized by the Spanish, uh, they were never colonized by, by Mexico, and it wasn't until the 1850s um, that they, and they still there still today, you know, they're still right. right where they were when the Spanish came. So, that's an important story. Uh, it's an important story to to tell,
1: I think. No, I agree, and I appreciate you making that point, because that's, that's typically how I, what I think of, uh, you know, when I'm reading, you know, works like yours in Borderland Studies, and it's the the, the trouble with how to, right, bookend the study, right, that does not right, fall right, into exactly. the inevitable decline, yeah. uh, the population is lost, it's gone, that type of, right. Um, right. you know, uh, typical inevitable turn that, that a lot yeah. of the the, 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 the but more the traditional narratives that take, although academic scholarship pushes back against that. And so I appreciate you uh, right. you're bringing up that yes, that is a key point to bring out. There's there's certainly been a, a change in how these people have had to live their lives. Of course, that was nothing new. They were these people were fluid. Their societies were fluid. They were evolving. They were adaptive. But the point that yes, you know, they are still there. Um, and right. I mean, that even yeah. brings up a whole other question that there is now then so much more scholarship right that needs to be done. On these people, yeah. you know, to now bridge, yeah. uh, and I'm sure that's being done in in various ways, but that then bridges, you know, the the mid 19th century. A lot of these studies have kind of end in the mid 19th century yeah. uh, or yeah. late 19th century, even to you know the yeah. present. You know, what have the communities yeah. been doing now? And, and you started to mention some yeah. of these social justice issues at the beginning of our conversation yeah. that that you're involved yeah. with and working with them. That that that's that's the history that's going on right now. Is that right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, what's amazing, what's exciting now is there is a, there is actually a flourishing, and, and particularly in native studies, you know, historians are, are, uh, catching up 20th century. I mean, it's been, you know, there's been many, many great 20th century studies of, of Indian country, all, all different tribes, and, uh, but I think, uh, you know, native studies and, and kind of indigeneity and, and thinking about, uh, indigenous archives and sources, Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. um, it's it's really flourishing. I think um, um, there's a lot of you know theoretically, especially I think there's lots of uh, folks, native scholars in particular, who are right. advancing uh, and 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 forcing uh, not just historians but people who are you know museum curators and and not right. more, forcing is not good, you know uh, facilitating the reexamination mm-hmm. of of collections and and exhibits and monuments. I think this is where the frontier, frontier as there were, but this is where the, you know, this is the next phase of, of, um, of scholarship. And, uh, and of and understanding right. about native history is, is the public part, the commemoration part.
2: Right. I think right.
0: ultimately, and for any history, this is where native history isn't unique, but again, I think it's particularly so because of this, just this particular history that, um, there is, and because of the government-to-government relationship, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Uh, that that misinformation and kind of myths and instead of history misinforms uh, political decisions by Congress, Supreme right. Court, policy right. makers etc who rely on, you know, who aren't relying on good history right. uh, in some cases. So no, I think uh... that's uh, This is where the implications are huge for 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 Native America, but also for you know. For all of Americans, you know, right. I think. Uh, again, you could see this in, in other other groups of Americans, right?
1: That are exactly.
0: Seeking right. to seeking restoration, you know, things, restorative justice, seeking uh, reparations, whatever it might be, but using history, good history, as a way to to do that.
1: I I, I agree fully. It's um, I think yeah. I view it more as. Uh, to some extent, I, I'm trying to figure out how to word this, too. I am I, I cringe at times when, uh, just when I think of how things, uh, you know, subfields, say, like, you know, Native American history or, or my field, Latino studies, Chicano studies, whatnot, uh, how these things are kind of compartmentalized and at times yeah, right. viewed outside of, you know, U.S. history uh, or their field. You know, it's so for, for example, right. explain what you do. Exactly. Someone's like, oh, you're a Native American historian. You're right. a, you're right. not necessarily right. an American historian, right? And right. and my exactly. kind of view is well, the way history is history has typically been done, it's all like ethnic history, right? I mean, if you're studying right. colonial that's America right. on the eastern seaboard and it's you're right. studying the the founding of the you know the, the founding fathers, of the Constitution, that's ethnic history, right? <laughs> because you're covering right. just right. one group a lot exactly. of times. Um And so, anyways, exactly. the, the the bigger point I'm trying to make is that yes, this all forms and it's important good history. Um, helps to revise the national narrative and to revise it yeah. accurately right not this these yeah. aren't necessarily political projects but these are really viewing this land uh whether it's north america right, broadly um, yeah. uh, and the parts that eventually become the nation state of the united states or mexico or whatever not yeah. but as the histories, these collective histories that they, they really are. And so it, yes, it takes all this, this research and good history, good in-depth study. And you're right. Yeah. Unfortunately, it takes time for it to bubble up to the surface, but, uh, you know, hopefully studies like yours and others, um, they, they are doing yeah. that, you know, and you're seeing that you see them in public history commemorations, um, yeah. you know, in monument building. And maybe that's the yeah. way it starts. And then it, you know, it gets into, K-12 through curriculum and, and fizzles yeah, its way up, absolutely. hopefully, you know? I mean, I, yeah. I hate the idea of trickle-up guess, history, but...
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I think it's so... I mean, I think... Yeah, I think it goes both ways, so I think um, you know, good... Unfortunately, a good scholarship has has trickled down, so to speak, to, to some of the cultural institutions, you know, museums, etc. Mm-hmm. But also uh, you know, there is a trickle-up effect, too, I think, um, where, you know, you can Scholars and public can meet halfway. Right, uh, right. Some of these things, because you know, ultimately, it's larger than just scholarship, right? It's larger exactly. than telling the right story. It's exactly. it to be the vehicle for transfer culture, you know, for the transformation, and for the U.S. to, The United States has to live up to. You know, you mentioned the founding fathers, right? and the, the, the sort of founding this, you know, for us to, to as so, of living as citizens and living in the United States, to um, you need to address these historical injustices mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, because we'll never get beyond that until you address. I mean, it's obvious you won't get beyond it until you address it, right? And to address, you need to have the right history, or, the, or not to say the right history, but the better informed, more inclusive history, right? Um, you know, and then allows that allows for that healing, and that allows for the you know. For some of that, there are some very real, sometimes economic, um, uh, you know, reparations of, in one form or the other that, that need to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, in mm-hmm. terms for for us to address this, these kinds of, or you know, whether it's a, a like in South Africa, you know, a, a, a truth and reconciliation commission, that kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. that that's a, that's a good way to that's a good that's a great model for for addressing the historical uh, the past and then also creating some lasting change. right? Like, you know, that's, there's, uh, you know, there's the great, I mean, Germany is a great example of, you know, of a society that's, uh, not perfectly, but has, you know, faced up to the history. But, you know, whenever you walk around, I've never been to Berlin, but many people have, who talk about this, say, so, you know, you go around Berlin, you can't go more than a hundred feet without seeing some type of monument to, hmm you know, the Nazi genocide, you know, and, Mm um, there is a, you know, there's a a way that the culture has, um, has tried to address, again, not perfectly, but addressing ways that the U.S. has not addressed.
2: Right,
0: right. um, Native America, Mm -hmm. slavery, uh, immigration, you know, immigration issues, et cetera. And it kind of just trickles up the policies in that way as well. And that 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 there's a way to, yeah,
1: and and that there's a way to do that effectively that, that, you know, gets past um you know the the hesitance that comes with oh, you know, that the this history promotes guilt. Right. right? Like this historical guilt. As if I'm I'm somehow responsible for what happened three hundred years ago. But that's that's a lot of the pushback that we get from this history. And well what do you mean? Why should we why do we need to address this issue now shouldn't we just leave it under the rug? Uh do you just want to make me feel guilty? Or, you know, and 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 that type of perspective, you know, I think is um as this this is kind of one of those books that shows right as as people have intermixed over you know three hundred five hundred a thousand years or so like I think we can get beyond the whole guilt part of it right <laughs> right it's exactly. you know, part of the history and getting the historical record correct and and more um, uh, more accurate if you will is about right. moving beyond all of that right you yes. said and, and really viewing each other as right. much more broadly as uh,
0: reconciliation. Right. I think reconciliation right. is a good word. That's a good uh, word. You're right. It's a good yeah. word because it's it's more than just, you know, peace and harmony. It's not about oh yeah, but it's not guilt you're right, guilt is a it's an it's a it's a debilitating doesn't do anything.
2: No, no, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean obviously and, it's and, a,
0: yeah. obviously you guilt like in a court of law, well, you know, we have a adversarial court. that's how our court system our mm-hmm. legal system is framed. That that's makes sense. Um so there is that. But beyond that, you know, I think yeah, guilt is, it just it allows you to turn your head because you don't mm-hmm. want to feel guilty. Right. Reconciliation, right. right, like you said, is, is
2: great point. a good great word,
0: word to, you know, um transcends it. It transcends mm-hmm. it. I agree. Yeah. Great.
1: Well, so, thanks so much uh, for, uh, man, this was just a great conversation. And I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. No, I, I before- appreciate
0: it. I'm honored to talk.
1: And before we uh, wrapped up entirely, I just want to give you a moment. You know, I know this project has has been done for a little while, and I, I know you have new things on the horizon. Just, you mind just take a minute or two and and talk about uh, what are you, what is it you're working on now?
0: Sure. Well, I was thinking about retiring after I have this interview. <laughs> I think I'll be able to sell as many books as I ever wanted, thanks to you. So, <laughs> uh, no, I uh, well, it's two things. One, I'm working on a book right now called uh, Food Frontiers. Mm-hmm. uh borderland ecologies and indigenous and euro america so it's it's basically picks up from where the this book left off um, in terms of thinking about the borderlands of course, but thinking about how food systems in particular uh shaped yeah you know, food think about food systems as a lens and when i say food systems i mean not just the f- food products but the the infrastructure, the, right, right. The, the the kind of consumption and demand cycle you know consumption and production cycle if you will. Mm-hmm. The you know the roads, again the infrastructure, the technology, and uh, the kind of particular uh regional climate, the city ecology. How all those. that's kind of how a food system operates. You know, right. So every city or every region has a food system and Now, of course, we're part of a global food system as well. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, I'm interested in looking at the evolution of that and thinking about the North, think about North America in particular, uh, colonial or early American, uh, pre-industrial, if you will, in North America through that lens, the food system lens. And what you see is um, you see a flipping of some narratives again. You see how indigenous producers uh, and borderland communities are able to dictate certain political-economic relationships. You see um, different dire- direction of food products and, and technology going in certain directions that um, kind of counter some of the, the narrative of East to West, you know, that, that's, that U.S. narrative. So it allows you to access... And then, of course, it speaks to today, you know, food and food systems and and the environment are such a, you know, uh, it's such a timely obviously it's always timely, but it's on the minds of everyone we're thinking about water and thinking about how our consumption patterns are shaping the ecology of the planet and how it's we need to rethink that. So some ways it's kind of how I, I have an eye on a, on a on some of the contemporary policy issues.
2: But mm-hmm, using,
0: uh-huh. that, using that using yeah, that historical lens to think about that cause there's been tons of stuff written about modern food systems, you know, kind of the post war, post war to right. industrial. So it's kind of looking at really thinking about, well, what did, what did the world, what did North America and the world look like, um, before that, you know, was, were there similar patterns of mm-hmm. exchange and what does that tell us about? What does it tell us about those patterns? Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of that. That's one thing. Another the other thing I'm working on is, is more directly related to, to this book in some ways, um, is, uh, it's actually a, a collaboration with my dissertation advisor, uh, Lisbeth Haas, who, as I mentioned before, she's been doing really wonderful work on on uh, Native California. And uh, we're trying to uh, put together a, uh, a series of essays by different scholars uh, who look at these issues we've been talking about indigenous uh, native, native studies, or indigenous history, and asking the question about, you know, what is a... About indigenous archives, how how can we tell? How can we tell more inclusive, uh, better histories about Native uh, right, America
1: right.
0: through so the archives? How how do we use archives? How do we think of the archives as more, you know, a more more copious way of understanding, the icon, a more inclusive way of understanding the archives? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of question we're asking, and we're hopefully we're gonna get to a bunch of uh, folks who are at the cutting edge that are working on these things. And have a a great uh, theoretically driven book around that, a series of essays around that. Okay. Those are the two things and that I'm, that I'm uh, working on right now.
1: Well, they both sound fascinating, and particularly you know the uh, you know the formation of a you know an indigenous archive, and and yeah. you know it really yeah. gets at the root of your book, right? Getting um, you know switching that uh, you know the, the um, you know the that, European to indigenous periphery, right? Uh, core, you have the right, in, European right. core, indigenous periphery, and flipping that around, exactly. right? To indigenous core, exactly. European periphery, exactly. right? And, uh, and that's very difficult with this, with the scant, uh, record, um, you know, as yes. we consider records at least in our European, uh, various, very imperialist, inflected mindsets. <laughs> um, but, right. uh, exactly. that's true. So that sounds like a great project and, uh. Yeah. You thank know, Nat, you. just want to thank you again for coming on to New Books and Latino Studies, taking time out of your, your day to discuss traders and raiders. We appreciate it. It's a, it's a great book. And, and thanks for, again for your time.
0: Thank you. And thanks for your great work.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to New Books and Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with Natale Zapia, author of Traders and Raiders The Indigenous World of the Colorado Basin, 1540 to 1859 published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. If you enjoyed our conversation, we'd appreciate your feedback, and you can reach us by emailing newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com or uh, tweeting us or commenting on our Facebook page. Also, if you're interested in purchasing Dr. Zapia's book, you may do so by following the Amazon link on our New Books in Latino Studies
2: page.